Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Welcome back to another edition of Word on the Street. So we're going to continue where we left off last week, really, focusing on some additional client questions we've had come in. So thanks very much for those who have submitted them. Please do keep them rolling in. And today we're going to look to get into China, emerging markets more broadly, the UK. There's perhaps unsurprisingly as our home market been a fair few questions relating uh, to to our homeland. And we'll also consider Japan and the role of culture and language in economic growth. So as ever, Will, plenty for you to dig your teeth into. And why don't we start with that final point around culture and language, something a little bit different. I think the questions have probably been triggered by an interesting article that we saw in the Financial Times. And that's basically sparked a bit of a wider discussion, really, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right, Mars. And, and hello and hello, everybody. Um, if, if I remember rightly, it was an article titled, uh, Is the West Talking Itself Into that's Decline? Yes, uh, by a guy called John Byrne Weddock. Uh, he's a statistics guy in general, very interesting, I think. And what he's done is update um, what is actually an increasingly popular strand of explanation for why the first first industrial revolution happened at all. I hear you sigh. I know, I know. (laughs) Basically, this explanation looks at the evolution of language in the run-up to economic takeoff. And remember, there were kind of millennia of stagnation, and suddenly you have this economic takeoff in the uh, 19th, 18th centuries, uh, which really sort of changed everything. As usual, I'm cutting corners, but literally, I'm summarizing kind of millions of hours of research in a sentence, but some such as, uh, you know, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, John Mokir, Jared Rubin, and other such kind of economic history deity detect a greater emphasis in this period, in the run-up to economic takeoff, in the written word, towards progress. Uh, and that's in the kind of 16th and 17th centuries. And so you find this kind of more optimistic language coming in. I could just sense you there, desperate to reference your humble shipping attack. But you didn't. So well done. But the point, you know, he kind of goes on, doesn't he, to point to the same analysis suggesting that over the last 50, 60 years, the West has begun to shift away, I suppose, from a culture of progress towards maybe one slightly more centred around caution and risk aversion. And basically, this in turn is used to explain a, a slowing in growth, right, is, is the argument anyway. Yeah, slowing growth. Yeah, yeah, correct. That's exactly right. Um, I guess the question we have to ask ourselves on this, first and foremost, is the degree to which the change of language of words used is actually causing the change uh, that comes afterwards, the economic change that comes afterwards? Or are we looking at something, you know, further down the causal chain, something that causes language to change, which in turn, you know, uh, provides or represents a sufficiently fertile cultural context to allow industrialization and economic takeoff, if I'm not being too, too, uh, too weird. Uh, or perhaps it's just spurious correlation, like, uh, you know, the near immaculate relationship between bedsheet stranglings and per capita cheese consumption. You're not being too weird. We've definitely heard that analogy a few times and always a, always a funny one, isn't it? But you know what's coming next? Where do you stand? With all of this? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, personally, I think the causal chain lies further back um, with the UK's early primacy in financial services, potentially really important in setting British culture on a different path uh, to some uh, uh, to some other potential launch pads for you know, industrial takeoff in the 18th and 19th centuries, and that became embodied in language. Um, some go even further back and look at things like a, a Western kind of psychological schism 
prompted by the spread of the Catholic Church amidst a falling Roman Empire. Uh, I think we've talked about this before. I've bored you before, but I'm going to uh, got the mic, so I'll keep it. Uh, but the Catholic Church basically needed to break during this period, you know, the ending of the, the Western Roman Empire, the Catholic Church needed to break allegiance to clans, which were obviously the dominant mode of organization at that time. So it really went to town on things like interfamily marriage. Um, I think you had to marry beyond your sixth cousin or something, which actually meant, if you think about it, you know, you had to travel quite a distance to find your other half. And what that meant is you set your family up a long way from the influence of your clan, these kind of nuclear families. Yeah. This strand can ultimately explain different institutions, because if you think about it, if you can't rely on your family or care, you know, for care in your dotage, uh, the state is increasingly drawn in to providing the, the, the patchwork of support the clan would provide uh, elsewhere and continues to provide elsewhere in some places. You can also find much greater female agency without the overbearing influence of the mother-in-law, so on and so on. These are just some of the several competing uh, explanations. Just for interest, look up the Great Stirrup Debate for another really interesting one. Maybe only to me. <laughs> I'm sure some will find it interesting. But, but got <laughs> it. And so where does that lead us with the current debate around language and so-called declinism? Yes. I mean, I, I think culture is a really important influence. I mean, there's quite a lot of agreement around that. I think particularly the willingness to experiment, to tinker with new technology, that's going to be really definitive in the, you know, the moment we're in. We've spoken before about the role of the Royal Society in the kind of 17th century and other cross-sectoral gatherings uh, played in taking, uh, you know, scientific discoveries of the day and turning them into, you know, life-changing literary tools. Uh, the sort of modern day Barclays analog would be, you know, Barclays Eagle Labs or something along those lines. We've talked about that as well. Um, and there are other competing uh, you know, or, or complementary kind of frameworks as well from other banks and institutions. However, I think language potentially lags those cultural changes rather than leads them. So just talking positive won't make it so, I don't think, unfortunately. But it might be better for your mental health. So don't stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe tying that into what we touched on last week. I heard you on a radio show um, talking about culture is perhaps a bit of an explanation for the existence of those mega cap names in the US, a bit more so perhaps than in Europe or, or the UK. Yes, I mean, I, yes, I was rabbiting on. I was allowed to rabbit on at another. <laughs> Not a very kind radio host. But yes, it, it can get a bit thin, this explanation, and a bit vague, you know, the cultural kind of explanation, because uh, it's so hard to measure, isn't it? That's the problem. And it gets quite dangerous. You can go into darker territories as well of sort of, you know, cultural determinism and all sorts of other ugly strands. But yes, you know, characteristics often seen as specific to America do seem to provide a neat explanation for corporate size. The resilience of corporate size, uh, you know, across very different kind of antitrust and other kind of other backdrops. And I think the point here is in reference to the idea it's not just about antitrust enforcement, which is obviously going to be, I think, a big story here. The exact topic is the subject of loads of interesting books. But entrepreneurs, company bosses, even banks are certainly viewed very differently in America to how they are viewed in Europe and the UK. There are many explanations for why that might be. All of them, I think, or many of them are fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and sticking with that theme, but tying it into Japan, as I referenced earlier, there seems to be, well, a fair bit of excitement, really, around the region and uh, investors in that market. And there perhaps is a bit of change afoot after decades of, let's be frank, not that much going on, really. That was your first, let's be frank. 
<laughs> You've done right. You got me. Yeah, yeah. You pick up on mine. I'll pick up on yours, pal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're right. I think there are cultural factors to take into account here, keeping that strand alive. Yeah, you know, the Japanese economy has not moved much in the last few decades, uh, stagnating at what is still envi- an enviable level of technological and wider sophistication. I think a lot of explanations for this kind of so-called stagnation have, you know, people talk patronizingly, I think, of Japanization and so on. But a lot of explanations have tended to emphasize macroeconomic factors, certain policy settings, you know, debt loads and so on. But I think I've said before, I'm much more interested in the bottom-up microeconomic points, you know, even beyond a society that's aging fast, Japan's society is innately conservative in many important ways. Society has to a degree rejected the chaos that often comes with kind of American-style capitalism. You know, dynamic, yes, but exhausting and frequently, you know, leaving its carcass cities and industries just lying out in the open. So for a new world to constantly be created, bits of the old one have to be destroyed. That's the old, you know, the old truth. Anyway, The way I think that shows up in markets is a very different trend in profitability. So Japanese companies have a lower trend in profitability relative to their US brethren. The excitement that we're seeing this year is that we may be seeing changes there, perhaps durable changes to that psychology, in part due to the experience of COVID and the inflationary hump that followed as changing kind of society's expectations of inflation, or seems to be a little bit, but also due to enforced changes in corporate governance. So companies are being forced to behave in a more shareholder-friendly manner by a range of means. And this is why we like, you know, thinking about the sort of investing context, this is why we like having a small taste of the region's stocks and bonds in our diversified funds and portfolios. A bit of skin in the game. Yeah, I think there's something very interesting going on. I'm not sure whether they'll be sustained, but, you know, like you say, having a little skin in the game just in case seems very wise to me. Uh, And we have a collection of funds carefully managed by the team to do just this. Perfect. Let's take a little bit of a hop away from Japan and move on to look at China and the ever-flowing news volume around there. I know we spoke a fair bit at the back end of last year in particular around the difficulties in, in previous podcasts here and also articles you and the team have written. But, but just to check in, given that news flow, has there been any kind of material change in, in the team's views there? Well, I mean, uh, yes, I, we have written a lot on this. And, and please, you know, listeners do get in touch if you feel you want to be sent all of this again. You know, I won't go over it all again now. But I think the first point to make is that there's a lot of trouble working out what is actually going on in China at the moment. Economic data, they're not amazing anywhere, but its data are particularly bad and unreliable here at the moment. There seem to be a lot of internal inconsistencies too. Um, what is being reported doesn't quite marry up. So the suspicion is that potentially is something uh, there's some smoothing going on, or maybe it's not deliberate, I don't know. But we just don't get the transparency we get with some of the other major economies. So youth unemployment, for example, hit, I think, uh, 20% which is obviously quite worrying. And the series was discontinued with worries about the data cited as the reason. It was then recontinued, but the figure with a slightly different series, but the figure was 500 basis points roughly lower. Now, this could be right. It could be more accurate. But most, a lot of data agencies would keep the previous series going to help analysts and other watchers uh, sort of gauge the differences. Anyway, there is a lot of negativity in markets about China's outlook. 
The problems are well documented, I think. You know, a giant so far, relatively slow motion property bust is front and centre. That is dangerous in itself. Households are nervous because remember, houses are the primary asset on the household balance sheet. And remember, these households already save much more of their earnings relative to those in the US and Europe, say, with quite a thin and holy social uh, wholly as in with holes, uh, yes. social safety net, uh, part of the kind of assumed problem. So this, that, you know, the reforms to the hooker law and the, you know, so on and so on, hooker system, the household registration system, they're sort of not moving quite in as far as some people have wanted. However, I mean, I think the point we would make is don't get too carried away with what the moment can tell you about the future for investors in the region or even in the country. Emerging markets uh, were a positive area for our investors in our multi-asset class products uh, last year. And the team senses that this area will likely contribute positively in terms of both diversification benefits and returns in the years ahead. For those of a more tactical bent, a short-term idea, remember that China can muster considerable powers of cohesion. That is one of the advantages of a command economy. Uh, just witness the emergence of the, you know, the rapid, incredible emergence of the inland high-speed rail network uh, relative to, say, the problems you're having in the US or the problems in the UK with HS2 and so on. And in human capital terms, the sheer number of highly educated, motivated individuals they can throw at problems. I mean, it's jaw dropping. And meanwhile, investors are already very gloomy on the outlooks. And that's usually a reason to, to you know, on its own, just to think about, you know, think twice about following the crowd. Really interesting. And I suppose it gets us quite nicely back to that point of whether individual freedoms matter in productivity growth, doesn't it? Granting them can be messy. After all, people... They don't always think what you want them to think. (laughs) Yes, there's an element of that, Miles. Uh, And we may not be right in wanting them to think a certain thing anyway. So, yes, there's a lot of humility here. But, uh, you know, and I think we'll find out. Um, You know, the answer is kind of coming. Uh, You know, such freedoms have been argued as necessary, but perhaps not sufficient in the process of sustained economic growth before. Uh, The point here is that the misfits, the eccentrics and so on, they're often central to the process of innovation. People who can think about problems, technologies and how to apply them differently. And you require that kind of iconoclasm. Well, that's been the argument so far. However, like you say, if you take that thought to its logical conclusion and argue that liberal democracy is the necessary framework for innovation to you know, sustainably flourish, then you have to work out at all times how to manage the losers, the people who didn't get who they voted for into power. How do you manage when people also, how do you manage when people vote for someone, you know, idiosyncratic or just plain unfit to wield authority? Somehow, I just don't sense we're going to solve that one here and now. So let's canter on and look at the UK. Now, I know this plays a much, much smaller role in our funds and portfolios. The phrase small fish in a big pond does does spring to mind, but we do still live here and that grabs attention. So there seems to be a bit of hope perhaps that things might be on the up. Well, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice, yeah. I mean, I tend to be a little bit more positive on the economy than a, than a really very gloomy consensus. Uh, Glass half full, man, aren't you? Yes, well, generally, yes. And with regards to the UK, you know, the... the you know, I mean, it's not even glass half empty. I mean, uh, the commentariat is is extremely negative and sort of relishes being negative on the UK economic outlook for some reason. Maybe it's just a sort of part of our British personality. We love talking ourselves down. But I mean, I do think here that positive inflation adjusted wage growth, you know, year on year, you're finding that wages after inflation are actually growing for the UK population. And that's true. And also in the US 
to a slightly lesser degree in, uh, and Europe, and that hopefully as inflation continues to wane and labor markets remain you know, relatively tight. That I think that could be really important for this year. And we're also well over halfway to digesting, you know, the headwind from the mortgage rate uplift. And yes, you know, there are challenges and they're well documented and sort of, you know, there are a number of things that policy can do to help, I think. I mean, uh, personally, you know, if we look at sort of, you know, how the UK could take advantage of this next industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution that's coming back, there is a cultural element. There is certainly an element of, you know, how do we rediscover that that cultural elixir that we managed to have during that first industrial revolution, that sort of tinkering and experimentation and sort of slight risk-taking approach, there is, I think, helpful things the state could do. I mean, if you look across the sort of various analysts of this, you know, particular area of economic growth, productivity growth in particular, you know, the points that people have made are really about, you know, that we're doing a lot of the things that other economies have used um, successfully in the past. So if you think about DARPA, for instance, you know, the um, US military industrial sort of complex where most of the innovations from your iPhone came from and various other things. If you've got an iPhone, sorry, I should probably just say smartphone, shouldn't I? And so we've done a bit of that, but quite small so far. Same with catapult centers. These were a tactic that worked very well in Germany and South Korea, for instance, where what you do is you have, you know, a gathering place for smaller businesses in particular, I guess, to access the frontier of technology and management practice and various other things, kind of shared services that allowed, you know, sometimes the tail of the corporate sector to catch up to the frontier quicker. Um, so we do that. But again, you know, the point that people make is that the decimal place in terms of the spending is on the wrong place. You know, we've experimented with a bit of industrial policy. But again, you know, the problem here is a bit of, you know, a bit of ADHD in a sense that we've we haven't kept to one policy. Uh, there's been several different ones over the last, and that, that is a very difficult situation for an economy to make the most of those things. So I think some policy continuity and sometimes, you know, in some areas, certainly some scale, that seems to be quite acknowledged um, as things the policymakers can do here. But like I say, I, I'm not as pessimistic on the outlook for the UK as some. And yes. What can I say? I said you're a glass half full and you are certainly... <laughs> boosting things aren't you talking up the economy flying the flag whatever you want to call it <laughs> yes i'll try not to that's bad that's a bad habit isn't it but yes no the biases are in, uh, yes innate let's say very good very good right that's everything i had on my list we'll keep it slightly briefer today um hopefully that was helpful and as we said at the start please do keep the questions coming and we'll look to tackle them further in the next few weeks speak then all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.